Hello, and welcome to this Biblical Education series on the book of Exodus. You can find this series and others online at onefellowshipumc.org and on the One Fellowship Church podcast. Visit us online to learn more about our congregation and the work that we do in Waco, Texas. Thank you, and enjoy. We, uh, we are here, Facebook Live, One Fellowship United Methodist Church for our regular Wednesday evening Bible study. And we have just finished talking about uh, the ancestors in the book of Genesis. And so, my friends, uh, for, for this next study, we're going to move into the next part of the story in Torah. That is the story of the Exodus. So if you will, please join me in prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for this day, for the opportunity to study, to think, to inquire. We pray, Lord, for our neighbors, for our families, for our friends, and for our community during this season, that your comfort, that your peace, and that your healing will be upon us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, my friends, let us dive right in here to the story of Exodus. Of course, the book of Exodus gets its name from uh, the the Greek title uh, for the book, uh, The Exodus Out of Egypt. The book of Exodus as a whole, we're going to find the storytelling in some parts are going to be considerably different than what we've gotten used to in the ancestor stories. There are different ways of telling the story. Different genres are going to be interwoven into the story of Exodus. But we'll find that periodically throughout the stories in the book of Exodus, that it is going to connect us back to the promises given to the ancestors. It's going to connect us back to key themes that we saw carefully interwoven throughout the stories of the book of Genesis, the themes of creation, the theme of promise, the theme of covenant. And so, my friends, we're going to find that even though, once again, the storytelling shifts a little bit here in the book of Exodus, that it is still part of this larger narrative of God's working with with the Hebrew people. We're, we're going to find, my friends, in the book of Exodus, there are uh, three main sections, the way that the book is divided. Uh, the first section of the book is uh, chapters 1 through 15, which is the story of this Exodus event. And this is the story with which we tend to be the most familiar when we talk about the book of Exodus. When we talk about the book of Exodus, we uh, have these connotations, these associations with this particular story, the, the plagues of Egypt, God leading uh, the Israelite people out of Egypt. Egypt, um, utilizing the prophet Moses uh, and his brother Aaron in the process. Now, the second part of the book of Exodus um, is chapters 15 through uh, about the middle of 24, or, or chapter 24, and this is when the Israelites arrive at Mount Sinai, and we get the, the giving of the covenant. So we get the book of the covenant in here. And within this collection of chapters, um, the the section that we tend to be the most familiar with is Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. And many of us have read through the Ten Commandments multiple times. If you've been raised in church, there's a good chance that you've been raised around these Ten Commandments. And one of the fascinating things, though, is sometimes we focus on the Ten Commandments, but we lose sight of what comes before the Ten Commandments and what comes after them in the larger structure of the book of Exodus. And so it's one of the things we're going to look at. Uh, the, the third section, the final section of the book of Exodus is chapters 25 through 31, uh, or 
chapters um, 25 through 40. And this is all about uh, the sanctuary, the building of the sanctuary and um, the covenant. And so one of the fascinating things to talk about when we think about the book of Exodus as a whole is how these three component parts actually build on one another and interrelate to one another. Because as we move between these three component parts, we're going to find new genres, new literary styles, uh, and new content. When we think of the book of Exodus, we tend to think of the first part, chapters 1 through 15, the actual story of the Israelites moving out of Egypt and traveling to Sinai. But we have to remember that that is not the end of the story, that these next two parts are going to be carefully integrated, carefully build upon that story. And so, my friends, I'm excited about this study here on the book of Exodus and the many chapters that we are going to look at uh, in the weeks to come. So if you will, please, let us begin with Exodus chapter 1. And for this evening, we will focus primarily on Exodus chapters 1 and 2. This is uh, <clears throat> sort of the introduction to, um, to the book of Exodus. And uh, in many ways, it's going to introduce uh, some of the key players, particularly Moses. And what we find oftentimes in, in biblical texts is introductions are very important. They're very important for the storytelling. And many times in the introductions, they will foreshadow key themes that we're going to find interwoven throughout the stories to come. And so we're going to want to keep our eyes open for that here in Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so, my friends, let us begin here. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel. Israel, of course, being Jacob, who came to Egypt with, uh, with Jacob, each with his household. And so we get Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, uh, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Nephtali, Gad, and Asher, uh, each of the 12 um, sons of Jacob. Verse 5, the total number of people born to Jacob was 70. And then we get Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, it's, it's important to recognize that the book of Exodus opens by connecting us back to the stories of the ancestors. Even though some of the storytelling will, will change, even though some of the genres will change in the following chapters, it's important to recognize that they have been intentionally integrated and connected back to those stories of the ancestors. And so here, of course, um, in chapter or in verses one through seven, we get this very intentional connection of Exodus back to where the story of Genesis leaves off. And particularly, we get this echoing of Genesis 46, 8 through 27, when uh, Jacob's family relocates uh, down to Egypt. Now, I, I want to pause before we keep reading and recognize this use of the number here, the number 70. Verse 5, the total number of people born to Jacob was 70. And here's why this is important. Um, we have talked in the past about how uh, numbers tend to be uh, highly symbolic in the Bible, oftentimes. They, they carry uh, uh, an abundance of meaning. And the number seven, we know we see oftentimes throughout the Bible. The number seven first shows up in the story of creation, Genesis chapter one, the seven days of creation. And it's in these seven days that God completes, fulfills, brings to fruition this act of creation. And so throughout the storytelling in, in the Bible, um, the number seven takes on a highly symbolic meaning, oftentimes signifying completion, fulfillment, totality. <laughs> and so here, when we get this number 70, 
it conjures those associations for us, completion, fulfillment, totality, likely signaling that here Jacob's household, the entirety of Jacob's household now has come down into Egypt. The fullness of the household is now there. Now, this is a place where we have found the storytelling of Torah bring us before. We have seen the ancestors previously go to a land that is not their own, even a land where they face a threat. And we've seen the way these stories tend to work themselves out. We think about Abraham. Uh, before his name is changed, when he, he is called Abram and his wife, Sarai, when they travel down into Egypt. And there, Sarai in particular faces a threat. Uh, thanks, Abram, for that one. Um, we find this again with Jacob. When Jacob has to flee his brother Esau, and he travels to the household of Laban, and there he's facing another trickster. This is not a comfortable place. It's not necessarily a safe place for him to be. And here, once again, the book of Exodus, now all of the household of the Israelites traveling to a land that is not their own, a place where they're going to face a threat. Let's keep reading. <laughs> then Joseph died and all his brothers and that whole generation. So we're getting this, this changing of the generations. Remember how important the generations were in the book of Genesis for the storytelling, for connecting us from one generation to the next, from one story to the next. We see that people come, people go, ancestors come, ancestors go. Um, whether we see them as heroes or as warnings to be heeded, we see that the characters change, but there's one individual, one character throughout this story that's going to remain the same, who is going to remain constant, who is going to remain faithful. And that, my friends, is God. And so here, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, we get a changing of the generations. And we're going to get a changing of the situations. But we're going to find that God is still faithful. Then Joseph died, verse 6, and all his brothers and all, uh, and that whole generation. But the Israelites grew. Uh, the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And, and we want to recognize here that this language of the Israelites increasing echoes some of the earliest commands of God in Torah. I'm talking all the way back to the story of creation, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. We get this language here at the very beginning of Torah, this language of being fruitful, of multiplying. We get it show, uh, showing up again after the flood in Genesis uh, chapter 9, um, when there's sort of this recreation imagery. And so the opening of the uh, book of Exodus connects us back, not just to the ancestors, but to this theme of creation itself. Now, what we find is this theme of creation, this theme of, of multiplying, of growing, of abundance, begins in creation, but it carries throughout the ancestral promises. And so we think about the promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2, in uh, Genesis 15, in Genesis 17. Um, we get echoes of this language in Genesis 18, Genesis 22. It connects us to uh, Isaac, to um, Jacob. Each of these stories connected by this language of abundance, this language of being fruitful. And so once again, Exodus is opening with the Israelites going to a land that is not their own, going to a place where they are going to face a threat um, but this is a place that we have been before, and we have found that what travels with them is this, this command of God, this promise of God that has held the story together all the way through.
And let's take a moment to appreciate a, a, a theological reflection of the fact that even though the scenes of our lives change, even though the seasons of life change, even as the generations change, God and God's promises remain constant. Let us keep reading. The land was filled with the Israelites. <laughs> Verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in the mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. And I want to read this next verse here, verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah. And, and I want to pause right there before we talk about what Pharaoh was saying, because recognize this. This is a very important element of the storytelling to be aware of. Notice who is named in this story and who is not. We've talked about how names in the Bible are very significant, oftentimes carrying a, a, a fullness of symbolic meaning. And oftentimes the giving of names, the identifying of names is very significant in the storytelling. So notice here who is named and who is not. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, arguably the most powerful individual in the world at this time. Pharaoh is the most powerful individual in the most powerful empire in the world. Now we should stop to recognize that uh, it, in terms of the uh, historical power of Egypt, um, we should recognize that it depends upon when in Egyptian history uh, we tend to see these stories as taking place. And there's a little bit of a debate here, uh, but the um, Egyptian empire uh, begins receding in power around the, um, around the 13th century, 12th century, 11th century. In that region, we start seeing them kind of losing power in the region. But prior to that, they were uh, arguably one of the most important, one of the most powerful empires at play in the world. And so we get that sort of, um, that sort of heritage, that kind of memory of Egypt as a world powerhouse <laughs> here in the story. And notice that the most powerful individual in the most powerful empire in the world does not receive a name. But who does receive a name in this story? Shifra and Pua. Two Hebrew midwives. Two people that in the grand scheme of history, their names otherwise would not have been remembered. But yet here, 
they are identified. And, and this is going to be important for a couple of reasons. One, Pharaoh is, is never named. The Pharaoh is never named. And, and scholars have gone uh, back and forth about which Pharaoh could it be, uh, under which these stories take place. Um, many scholars have proposed that it could be uh, Ramses II, but the truth is that uh, it's really inconclusive. Um, it's really difficult to say when. Why? Because the Egyptians practiced uh, forced labor, servitude of this nature, a lot uh, in many centuries with many different peoples. And peoples were coming, peoples were going. Uh, that, And when the Israelites do leave out of Egypt, uh, notice that they live as nomads. They travel throughout the wilderness, uh, according to the story, the stories in the Bible, for 40 years. And, and it's, it's generations, really, before uh, they start building any Thing that would be left behind. And you see, here's the thing with, with nomadic groups in the ancient world, they tend not to leave a whole lot of material evidence. And so there's just not a lot of evidence to say when these stories would have been taking place. But um, aside from the historical questions, and there are many historical questions that, that we are very fascinating to think about, I think in the story, it's very important that Pharaoh goes unnamed. Because you see, when Pharaoh goes unnamed, Pharaoh is not just an individual now. Now we identify Pharaoh as a position, a position, a role that Pharaoh plays in the story. And here's why this is significant. <clears throat> because individuals come and go. People come and go. But oftentimes these positions, these characters in the stories, those can translate across generations. The Exodus event is one of one of the most um, significant events in, in the Hebrew Bible in that it is continually referenced time and time again throughout uh, not just Torah, not just um, the, the Deuteronomistic history, the books of uh, spanning from Joshua through Second Kings, but also throughout the prophetic literature, throughout the wisdom literature as well. And here's, the, here's one of the reasons why it's so significant is because they can take the story of the Exodus and apply it to new situations. So when uh, Jerusalem finds themselves surrounded by Babylon, destroyed by Babylon, when people in Jerusalem find themselves carried off into captivity by Babylon now, they can look back to this Exodus story. And the language of the Exodus gives them hope. God has delivered us once again. God, or God has delivered us once before. God can do it again. And so throughout particularly the prophetic literature, we get this language of a second Exodus. God's done it once before. He can do it again. And so I think that by telling the story and using these generic characters, these generic titles, it, it opens up the story to be applied in future generations. It opens up the story to be applied in different scenarios. Because you know what? Uh, we might not all face Ramses II, but we all have to live with a ruler over a superpower in the world who is uh, willing to sacrifice the well-being of people that he doesn't identify with in order to protect his own power. History is filled with stories like that. And so I think by pulling that individual identity away from Pharaoh and just identifying Pharaoh with that title, it allows the story to, to live on across multiple scenarios and generations to take on this applicability. Pharaoh goes unnamed, and I think that's significant. But I also think it is equally as significant that the people who are named in this story are the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. In fact, 
watch for how many women are going to show up in Exodus 1 through 2 and who are going to show up particularly in a life-saving capacity or in a life-preserving capacity. In fact, we are going to get 12 women throughout Exodus 1 through 2 who in some way are going to set the stage or protect Moses (laughs) in some way. And this is really significant because the number 12 is also a highly symbolic number in the Bible. Um, we get the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, Exodus chapter 1 opens by naming the 12 uh, sons of Jacob who come down into Egypt. They are now going to be enslaved. Their descendants will be enslaved here. And Moses is going to be the one called to bring the 12 tribes out of this land of bondage, to bring the 12 tribes out of the, the land where they are endangered, to bring them out to a place of safety. And so I, I think it's significant that in Exodus 1 through 2, before, ex, before Moses shows up to be a deliverer, we get 12 women who play a delivering role in the life of Moses. Um, that somehow prepare or set the stage or preserve him so that he can perform his delivering function. Shifra and Pua, the first two. Okay, so let's go back here. Um, let's take a look. Verse 15, the king of Egypt, not named said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. And and there's a question here when it says Hebrew midwives, is it talking about uh, two midwives who are Hebrew and therefore serving the Hebrews? Or is it talking about midwives who are Egyptian, but serve among the Hebrews? And uh, people have gone back and forth uh, for the sake of storytelling, of uh, the storytelling here in Exodus 1, I think we could go either way, truth be told, though uh, these are Semitic names, which makes it quite likely that they are uh, Hebrew by identity. So um, he says in verse 16, <coughs> when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. And there's some question about how best to translate that. And I'm going to sidestep that question uh, for the, for, uh, the moment. Um, see them on the birth stool. If it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the Hebrew midwives feared God. They did not, nor uh, they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the boys live. And so the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, well, because the Hebrew women, they are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous. They give birth before the midwives come to them. They tell the story. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and became very strong. Even after these attempts uh, not only of, of, of forced labor, of slavery, but attempts at killing, uh, infanticide, the people are still multiplying. They're still growing. And in verse 21, it's going to say, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And, and I want to uh, point to that word, feared God, because fear is actually going to be a theme uh, throughout this chapter. Um, there is some conversation. What, what does it mean to fear God when it's referenced in the Bible? Because when we in our modern American Christianity, uh, when we tend to think of um, fearing God, sometimes that language does not always sit well with us. We conjure these images of being scared of God. And particularly in our modern sort of theological context, we tend not to speak of God 
using that language, yet this language of fearing God shows up all throughout the Bible. And so oftentimes in our modern sort of theological minds, uh, one of the ways that we wrestle with this language is we sort of translate it a little bit um, to say something along the lines of revering God or of um, having a profound, a deep, profound respect for God. And while I do think this language in the Hebrew reflects a deep and profound reflect and reflects a revere, uh, it is important to recognize that these texts are written in an ancient world that is different than our world, and that some of the cultural assumptions may be different. And that in that ancient world, I think speaking of fearing someone, particularly fearing God, would have been received a little bit differently than we tend to receive it today. And so part of what we do when we read these texts, um, we have to think through how we can take what these stories teach and present them, understand them, conceptualize them, apply them in light of the modern world around us. And, th and that right there is just a task of interpretation, which is why we end up with so many different uh, interpretive approaches and methodologies. But going back to this theme of fear, notice that the midwives fear God. And this is actually stated twice. It's stated at the very beginning of the story of the midwives, and it's stated at the very end of the story of the midwives. So verse 17 and verse 21, uh, it repeats, the midwives fear God. But there was some other fear taking place earlier in this chapter. Pharaoh and the Egyptians they also feared. Now, the, the language is a little bit different, but I think the theme shows up very strongly, particularly in verses 8 through 14. They were also afraid. And notice that Pharaoh and the Egyptians, their fear leads them to oppress, to hurt, to harm, to be violent against the Israelites. Shifra and Pua, their fear leads them to become agents of life. The Egyptians and Pharaoh, their fear leads them to become agents of agents of death, agents of oppression. And it's interesting to note that comparison here. And, and I think there is a uh, really profound reflection about the power that fear can have in our lives. Not, not just our lives on an individual basis, but, <clears throat> but our lives um, on a collective or a societal level. Because when we collectively fear something or someone. Uh, throughout human history, we have seen how much fear can drive a society to remarkably troubling violence, to remarkably troubling levels of oppression, which I think is one reason why as Christians read these texts and as we reflect, it's very important that we resist the power of that spirit of fear, fearing the other, that could lead us to sanction, endorse, or simply look the other way in the face of violence. What fear is appropriate in Exodus 1 here? Well, Shifra and Pua, they fear God. That is where their respect, reverence, however we want to translate it in the modern world, that is where their fear is. It's important to recognize, and, and I think remarkably profound to reflect upon. Let's continue here. Verse uh, 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. 
it's important to recognize that this story opens with a story not just of oppression, but of infanticide, of Pharaoh commanding the death of the Hebrew children. And I, I think this is important because we're going to get this theme showing up again later on in the book of Exodus. And so we're, we're going to return to this, particularly when we're talking about the plagues. Because Pharaoh right now is trying to make himself the, the agent, um, the, the commander over life and death. But as we have seen throughout the Bible thus far, as we have seen throughout the book of Genesis, there is only one who is sovereign over life and death. There is only one giver of life in this story. And that's God. And that's why oftentimes when taking life shows up in the stories of the Bible, it, it, it is not simply an act of murder. It is an act of taking something over which God claims sovereignty. And so we're going to re revisit that theme later on when we start seeing this contest showing up between God, the God of the Hebrews, and the gods of the Egyptians through the, um, the plagues of Egypt. Let's continue. <laughs> when we get to Exodus chapter 2, now we move from the general context, the, uh, the, the general setting into which our story is going to unfold, to the arrival of a specific character who will carry us the rest of the way through Torah. That is Moses. Now a man from the house of Levi, reading in verse 1, went and married a Levite woman. Now we want to pause and recognize that the house of Levi traditionally is associated with priests. This is a, a priestly house, and we're going to find priestly themes surrounding Moses uh, throughout Torah, really. Um, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. Remember, there is this command out to kill the male children. <clears throat> she hides him. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and, and plastered it with uh, bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And notice who is facilitating the, uh, the, the, um, the saving, the preservation of Moses' life. We get another two women in this story. Remember, 12 women are going to become agents of life in Exodus 1 through 2. Twelve women are going to play a role in this storytelling and preparing the way for Moses to eventually bring about deliverance for uh, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. So here we get um, Moses' mother and we get Moses' sister. Now notice that it is not yet identifying uh, them by name. Um, Moses' parents uh, will be named later in Exodus 6.20. And the same thing with Moses' sister. Moses' sister is identified as Miriam later on in the story. But as of right now, the name has not yet been given. And it's fascinating. Uh, we, we talked about the importance of names to note that sometimes the Bible is going to introduce a character before it provides their name. It's going to introduce their function and their role, but their name, their identification is going to unfold later on. We want to watch for when that happens. Um, Moses' sister Miriam, by the way, um, appears in four additional books of the Bible. We get her in Numbers, we get her in Deuteronomy, First Chronicles, and again in Micah. This is more than, than any other woman that we find, uh, the, the way that she shows up throughout a breadth of texts like this. <clears throat> Let us continue. Verse 5, the daughter of Pharaoh. Now we have another woman entering the scene who is going to serve to deliver 
Moses in some capacity. Twelve women throughout Exodus 1 and 2 are going to prepare Moses to become a deliverer for the 12 tribes. The daughter of Pharaoh, verse 5, came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw a child and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's um, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said, yes. Um, so the girl went and got the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child, nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So notice Pharaoh's daughter now is going to become another one of these women who uh, who facilitate, who um, are going to deliver Moses in some capacity or be uh, life-giving agents in this story. She's the fifth woman. It's, it's Once again here, we get another giving of a name. Very important, very significant. And notice that uh, Moses isn't given the name in the story, the way the story unfolds, until uh, after he's grown. He's taken by uh, his sister back to his mother. He's raised in his own household. And then he's brought back when he grows up. And that's when he's provided this name, Moses. Now, Moses is... Um, is likely an Egyptian name of some uh, of some sort, a uh, Hebrew Moshe, and um, there is a wordplay taking place here. So the name Moses um, <clears throat> Moshe, she says, because I drew him out. The Hebrew word to draw out, Masha, and so in some ways Moses's name prefigures it. it uh, it sort of signifies the way in which Moses is introduced into the story. That is to say, he is drawn out from the Nile River, but also it is foreshadowing Moses' role and his identity. Remember that oftentimes names are going to reveal something about a character's role, their function, their identity in the story. Abraham, Abraham, father of many nations, signifies something about who he is. Um, and so here, Moses, to draw out, Moses the one who is going to draw out the Israelites from Egypt. Now, the, the, the name Moses um, does show up elsewhere in Egyptian literature, one of the reasons why we identify it as, as an Egyptian name, though oftentimes um, it is connected with the name of a deity. So Moses uh, in, in Egyptian would mean to, to give birth, kind of related to that idea of drawing out. Now, in the ancient world, oftentimes names contained the name of a deity along with either a verb or a noun. And that combination uh, is how people were named. So for example, the name Obadiah, the, uh, the name of God is Yah uh, from the Tetragrammaton, um, Hashem, uh, oftentimes spelled Y-H-W-H. Uh, that's where we in sort of our uh, anglicized version, or well, I should say by way of German get uh, Jehovah. <laughs> um, but Obed meaning servant. So Obed Yah, servant of Yah, or uh, servant of, of Adonai, of the Lord. Um, we get this with, uh, with various names. In the Bible, you'll find either Yah or you'll find El as a part of the name, somehow um, signaling uh, 
an action of God or an identity in relation to God. So, um, for example, Nathaniel, Nathaniel, uh, Nathan to give, El, God. God gives. God is the one who gives. And this is the way names are constructed in the ancient world. And so in Egypt, you get the same thing. You usually get a verb or a noun connected to the name of a God. And so uh, we get the name Tut uh, Mose or Tutmos, Tut Moses. That same root, MSS, Moses to draw out or to give birth. Tut draws out or Tut gives uh, birth. You get the same thing with Ramses, that Egyptian name. Ra, the sun god, Ra, Moses. Okay, that same MSS root. So we get this name all over the place. What's fascinating about the name Moses, though, is that it does not have what we call the theophanic element or the theophoric element. It does not have the name of a deity attached to it. It's just Moses. Draw out or give birth. And this name is going to signify not only how Moses enters into the story, but also the role he is going to play throughout the rest of the story. Let us keep going, my friends. In uh, verse 11 here, I believe we're in verse 11. Verse 11 through 15 is going to contain um, two stories of Moses. And these two episodes of his adult life um, are going to, in many ways, foreshadow the rest of Moses' story. <laughs> One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsfolk. He looked this way and he looked that. And seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sands. Story one. <coughs> Story two. When he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting. And he said to the one who was in the wrong, why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? And he answered, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid, and he thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. <coughs> Two stories of Moses that are going to prefigure sort of the ways in which he functions the rest, the rest of, uh, of e the story of Exodus, but also well into uh, to the rest of Torah. On the one hand, Moses is the one who seeks to deliver the Hebrews from the Egyptians. So just like how he delivers this Hebrew uh, individual from the Egyptian who's beating him. But at the same time, Moses is going to face the contention of his own people throughout this story. Them continually bringing accusations against him, continually complaining against him. We get this uh, not only elsewhere in the book of Exodus, we're going to get this in the book of Numbers as well. Here these four, uh, well, verses 11 through 15, prefiguring the rest of what we see in the story of Moses. And um, one of the things that's interesting is the when Moses intercedes with these two Hebrews who, who are fighting amongst themselves, um, one answers him and says, who made you, and he gives these two terms, who made you ruler and who made you judge? And what's fascinating is throughout the rest of the book of Torah, we're going to find that um, Moses functions as judge. Uh, we find many instances in which he is judging between the people, but he also functions in many respects as a ruler. And so we're getting uh, what we find here in the introduction to Moses. He is introduced from a priestly lineage, but he is also identified here through the voice of these Hebrews as a judge um, and a ruler. We're going to see all three of those themes intertwining throughout the rest of the story of Moses' life. <clears throat> so we come to um, this place where Moses now is afraid. He has to flee. Verse 15, but Moses fled from Pharaoh. 
and he settled in the land of Midian. Remember, Midian, uh, one of the descendants or, or a, a family descending from Abraham uh, that's identified there at the end of Abraham's life. Um, the Midianites show up periodically throughout these stories. Moses fled from Pharaoh. He settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. And now, my friends, we know what's going to happen because we have seen this before in the book of Genesis. We're at a well. What happens at wells? Wells are symbolic. Wells are, are places that signify life. Remember, you need water to survive, even in the desert. Uh, well, especially in the desert, I should say. And so uh, in places where there is no flowing water, a well is a source of life. It is a place where people gather. And so oftentimes in uh, the biblical storytelling, a well becomes a symbolic place where a gathering or a meeting takes place, and it results in, uh, in uh, sort of the giving of life. We oftentimes find marriage proposals or uh, betrothals or key meetings that signify the formation of a new family, the giving of life at Wells. Uh, we get this with the story of uh, Rebecca in Genesis 24. We get this with the story of Rachel uh, in Genesis 29. And here, once again, Moses is going to meet, um, is going to meet his wife at a well. <coughs> so, um, he sits down by a well. We're uh, moving into verse 16. The priest of Midian had seven daughters. We're back into this priestly language. The priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their uh, father's flock. Okay, so we get seven daughters here. How many women have we already encountered in Exodus 1 through 2? We've already got five. And so this brings us to 12. 12 women who show up and play prominent roles in Exodus 1 through 2. Um, and this in many ways foreshadows. They, they are, uh, are um, in, in some respects, either delivering, doing acts of deliverance, something like that, that prepares the way that makes it possible for Moses to perform his acts of deliverance for the 12 tribes. So the priest of Midian has seven daughters, verse 16. They come out to draw water. They fill the troughs to uh, water uh, their father's flock, verse 17. But some shepherds came and drove them away. Moses got up and came to their defense, and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come back so soon today? And they said, well, an Egyptian helped us against the shepherds. Um, he even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, where is he? Why did you leave the man? Invite him uh, to break bread. Invite him in for something to eat. Verse 21, Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave Moses' his daughter Zipporah in marriage. She bore a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. Alien uh, being the word ger. And so here, Gershom uses that root, ger. He is an alien living in a foreign land. <coughs> Notice that we, we get um, the seven daughters. Okay, Moses is saved by the daughter of a king. And now he saves the daughters of a priest. Moses comes from a priestly family. But then he is identified uh, through the course of this, this tension with the other Hebrew, uh, Hebrews who are fighting as a ruler. And so we're getting this, this crossing almost of this theme of kingship and, or ruling and this, theme, this priestly theme throughout this storytelling. Verse 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. 
out of the slavery, they their cry for help rose up to God. Notice the repetition of language. When the Bible starts repeating language, we should be underlining that and highlighting it because it's oftentimes significant. Many times, uh, especially in Hebrew storytelling and in Hebrew poetry, um, repetition is a way of signaling emphasis. So uh, we see this, for example, when the Bible describes God as holy, holy, holy. Uh, 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 Isaiah chapter 6 for example, <coughs> this trifold repetition. When you repeat something twice, it's emphasized. When you repeat something three times, it's like the superlative, the holiness of all. We see this several times in here once again now, okay? The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out, next sentence, out of slavery, their cry for help rose up. We're getting this, this, this repetition or this echoing of language. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. And my friends, this may be one of the most powerful passages, in my opinion, in the book of Exodus. In the ancient world, who hears the cries of slaves? In the ancient world, who hears the cries of the nameless? God hears them. And that's a theme that we find throughout, not just the book of Exodus, throughout the Bible as a whole. God hears the voices who go unheard. God sees the people who may go unseen inside of this world. We saw that earlier with the story of Hagar. We see it here in the book of Exodus. We're going to see it echoed time and time again throughout the Bible. This theme of crying out is going to connect future stories. We're going to want to watch for that. Um, the Israelites are going to cry out repeatedly throughout these stories following, and God's going to take notice. But one of the things that we see is th these last three verses connect us back to the central themes that have held these stories together. It connects us back to the ancestral promise, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, it, it connects us back to this idea of the covenant that has held those ancestral stories together. But it also reminds us that even as people come and go, even as generations come and go, even as pharaohs rise and fall, whatever, however we want to present it, there is one character that is going to remain consistent. And there's one character that is going to remain faithful. And that is God. Remember, all throughout the book of Genesis, the, the stories are driven by the ancestral promise. God makes this covenant, uh, <clears throat> this treaty almost, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the, the promises attached to this covenant are oftentimes under threat. And even when the, the ancestors try to take matters into their own hands to protect the, the promise or the covenant or to see it fulfilled in some way, oftentimes uh, that just ends up creating more drama or more problems. Every time, God is the one who has to intervene to protect the covenant. God is the one who has to act to protect the promise. And we see that true here once again in the book of Exodus. Who is it that's going to have to act? Who is it that is going to be faithful? Who is it that is going to see these promises through? It is God. The Israelites cried out, and God heard them. God took notice of them. And so, my friends, I want us to pause here for this evening, the end of Exodus chapter 1 and 2. 
Uh, we're going to come back next week. We're going to talk about uh, the story of Moses and the calling of Moses and Moses' commission um, and his return back into Egypt. And we're going to watch as many of the themes that were introduced here in Exodus 1 and 2 are going to, be, are, are going to unfold throughout the, the following scenes, throughout the following stories. And they are going to help connect these stories together. One of the things that this leaves us here, though, with is there is a brewing conflict coming. Because remember, Pharaoh, in the earlier chapter, tried to set himself up as the sovereign over the lives and death of the Israelites. And remember, we, we've mentioned that throughout the book of Genesis, there is one giver of life. That is God, which means only God is sovereign over life and death. And we see that to take a life is a transgression, not just against that life, but against the God who gave that life. It's trying to reach out and take something that God gave. And what we are going to find now is Pharaoh is reaching out to take something that God has been given. God has been giving all of this, uh, this abundance, this, this um, multiplying, this blessing upon the Israelites. And Pharaoh's trying to reach out and take it from them. And so we're seeing this conflict brewing. We're going to get a showdown in the coming chapters between the God of the Israelites and Pharaoh, who claimed to be the most powerful individual of the most powerful empire in the world. And so, my friends, I will leave you with that. I hope and pray that in this time that you are staying safe, that you are keeping well, that you are walking in blessings, and that you are channeling blessings to those around you, that you are a blessing and a source of life to those around you. My friends, may we take these words, plant them deep within our hearts, reflect deeply upon them so that we may not just speak them into this world, but so that we may live them, that they may transform who we are. May you go in peace. Blessings.